From Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Hello out there in Radio Land. It is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. Uh, we are broadcasting from Podcast Village Studio A in Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., your nation's capital. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell, joining me via the Coconut Telegraph. He is the former Biden political operative and attorney in the great state of Maryland and the District of Columbia. Or I, I guess I should say, after the Twitter war going back and forth between Elijah Cummings and uh, the president going on this week, uh, would you consider your dis- your uh, state rat-infested, Dan Lipner? Uh, not in the least. Okay, uh, but to, for the record, Jamie Raskin is my rep. I, I know that. I, I know that you're not in the seventh congressional district of Maryland, uh, at least the last time I checked. Uh, but anyway, so you are, and Dan Lipner is joining us via the Coconut Telegraph. Also on the line, he is the author of such great books as American Politics on the Rocks. He is the one we know as Rich Rubino. Hey, Rich. Hi. Oh wow. What did you do? Did that sound better? Absolutely. Great sound quality. So Wonderful. for those so for those of you who did not hear the first episode this week, uh it was kind of a technological nightmare. We had everybody spread out all over the place. We've got uh Rich playing road I mean we've got not Rich, we've got Dan Lipner playing Road Warrior and 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 you know what? Here's the great thing and this is why I want to say good things about podcast. If you do a podcast in the Natural Capital region, this is why you should come here to Podcast Village because in all honesty, the best engineer that could take the big pile of crap that we had in our first episode this week and make it productionable is Rob the engineer. Cannot tell you how much I appreciate your expertise. Rob, thank you. I, I I just want to clear up. I, I Eric, uh, pro, uh, executive producer Eric and I were taking bets in the uh, in the production room here uh, in the last episode. Uh, Dan, were you on the motorcycle while you were uh, calling in? <laughs> I, I I was not on the motorcycle. However, I have done the show from my motorcycle, but nobody knew. Wow, what a power is that true? Is that true? I like that. Is that, that is true? Absolutely true. I have done done the show from '66 on my motorcycle. Get out of here. That wow. is. Dude, that's baller. That is seriously baller. So what happened in this car? Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> wh- why did we get such a crap connection the last episode? Um, I don't know if the, the, the Russians were doing something with Volkswagen. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, anyway. I, I, I don't know. Anyway. Uh, it, it, it is the people's car, just, just saying. It is the people's car. Very good. Hey, you know, uh, in the 530, uh, the 530, in the second half of this episode, because we, we, we broadcast, we, we record this broadcast from Podcast Village on Tuesdays, and it's 5.30, at 5 o'clock to five, 6 o'clock, this episode's recorded. So in the second half of this episode, we have the former Democratic state senator from the 32nd District in Ohio and Fox News personality Capri Cafaro. She'll be joining us in the second half. Looking forward to that. She's sensible democratic voice unlike some others that i can mention i don't want to mention any names dan lipner anyway um <laughs> let's talk about something that isn't sexy it's not getting a lot of attention but you know what it needs to be addressed it's it's ugly it, it, nobody likes to see how the sausage is made but you gotta talk about it and that's the budget in case you don't know 
The House passed uh, over the weekend a $2.7 trillion spending budget uh, that is going to create the largest deficit in American history with this with the passage of this budget bill. It looks like from all indications that a deal was struck between the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, and the President, giving us an absolute stunning spending deficit uh, that 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 will that will literally leave generations holding the bag on this. Uh, we are the closest we've ever been to having a debt of close to, and, and I'm not kidding, $1 trillion. You can't make that up. We are close deficit, to having yeah. a deficit. A, I'm sorry, a, a national debt of $1 trillion. That is no, ins- na- na- National debt is cumulative. The deficit is the single annual deficit. Right, but our our but our we are, we, we, we are debt, circumventing. Uh, we we are crossing the I believe twenty three trillion dollars in debt, the one trillion dollars of deficit spending during yeah. a booming economy. Right, is something we have never seen before. Yeah, correct, correct, correct. Which which boggles the mind. Which, Rich, you're kind of our historian in in reverence. You know, we we've seen. Uh, Democrats, we've seen Republicans. It just seems that when whoever the party is in power really doesn't care how much they spend, but the party that's in the minority, they're kind of looking at it. It's like, hey, we're spending too much. Let's already, get some. The, the question is already untrue. What? Why is that untrue? Why well, is that untrue? Let's see. We have the last two Democratic presidents. Uh, being Barack Obama and Bill Clinton. Right. Bill Clinton came into office saying he was going to cut the deficit. He did not only cut the deficit, but ran a surplus. So we actually began reducing the debt that there is actually a possibility of completely paying off the debt. Um, That was actually projected. Uh, Barack Obama came in with a huge financial disaster. Um, And, it is noted that most economists, not all, but most economists suggest that pump priming, so running a deficit during hard times because the federal government can can take out loans that nobody else can to try and get more money flowing through the economy. But aside from that first major deficit that Obama had, oh. everything else started running down. The deficit, the annual deficit started getting reduced year after year during Obama's presidency. Contrast that with Donald Trump, George W. Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, and Ronald Reagan. It is simply a false narrative to suggest Democrats don't care about the deficit. And no, whoa, 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 whoa. That's, that is not, wait, 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 wait. That is not the comment that I made. The comment that I made is that when you have, particularly in Congress, when you have Democrats in charge, they don't mind writing a check. When you have Republicans in charge, 
they don't mind writing a check when, when they're in the minority. Running everything. What's that? They run it into the ground. Oh, geez, good God. Well, okay, here's Richard my, here's my yeah, here's my analysis on that. Um, first of all, in terms of the Democratic Party, there, I mean, there are really two Democratic parties. And in terms of Bill Clinton, and for, certainly, for example, you know, when he wanted to, when he when he cut the deficit, his first budget, the Budget Reconciliation Act of 1993. I remember when he ran for president, deficit reduction, particularly in the primary, was not his paramount issue. Paul Songus, the former senator from Massachusetts, made, made since he, he ran root canal economics, he said, "I'm going to cut, I'm going to cut the deficit by by cutting spending and raising taxes." It didn't work. Bill Clinton won the Bill Clinton won the nomination, and Ross Perot got in that year and ran as an independent. And Ross Perot made that a huge issue when he was able to personalize the national debt the point that America was looking for somebody that was going to reduce the deficits. When Bill Clinton got in, um, you know, he saw the deficit was actually larger than what he than what he had projected. And instead of the, you know, instead of you, instead of there being a major stimulus program, he tried that, but it failed. Um, he proposed he had a plan which did essentially what Paul Songus and Ross Perot did wanted to do. He cut spending and he raised taxes, on, particularly on those making over two hundred thousand dollars a year. And there was also George George H W Bush. Remember, he came in. It was really the Reagan administration that brought the deficit. It, I think it was about from $1 trillion when he came in to about $3 trillion. And then George H.W. Bush, actually in 1990, probably lost his presidency in part. They had a summit, they had a summit um, in Maryland where essentially George, George H.W. Bush broke his promise. In 1988, he said, read my lips, no new taxes. In 1990, he broke that promise and agreed to a budget deal, which essentially – Said that we're going to cut, we're going to cut the deficit. So that was the first act, nineteen ninety. Then Bill Clinton comes in, right, and and, and continues okay. that. In nineteen ninety seven, he makes a deal with Trent Lott and the Balanced Budget Act of nineteen ninety seven, right, and that continued to balance the budget to the point that by the end of his presidency, Alan Greenspan was testifying before the United States Senate, and he said that essentially we could be wiping out the national debt perhaps too fast. He didn't know how we could do it this right. fast. And Bill so, Archer, the congressman from Texas, the Republican, said, "I see surplus. You know, I'm afraid of runaway surpluses." That actually became a huge issue right before George W. Bush became president. But I will see this, though. There is something called unified budgeting. And the, def- the national debt is actually a lot larger than people think it is, because what they do is they take out all the unfunded mandates, all the unfunded liabilities to Social Security, trust funds, to, Medic- to, other, to, to other entitlement programs, so it actually appears less than it actually is. So, I mean, to, to Rich's point, Dan, you know, the Republicans... And and again, I'm not placing blame on the Democrats because everybody's to blame in this one. Everyone is not to blame. On everybody this. is to blame I, with I, it. They, I, they I reject a, that. How do you, wait, 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 stop, stop, these, stop. These, these, how at, do you at, say at that? The, at the end of the day, you have two columns, and there is revenue and there is spending. You have one party that has zero desire to do anything with revenue, period. Which party? Which is obviously it's the Republican Party. How do you say that? Wait, 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 wait! Stop! Wait, 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 wait! Which was touted as paying for itself. Dan Lipner. Dan Lipner. We're running this wildly ridiculous supply side. Dan Lipner, you have now a a a Democrat-run House that signed off on. A fifty-seven billion dollar increase in non-defense spending. They increased spending by three hundred and twenty billion dollars. They hit seven hundred and thirty-eight billion uh, for defense spending. 
All that is on the Nancy Pelosi House. They passed that budget. How do you say that the Democrats have absolutely no... What? Are you telling me that Mitch McConnell isn't involved with this conversation? No, 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 no. But when I say, when I make the comment... The spending caps where Barack Obama deserves huge amounts of credit, the spending caps that were in place, that he, he kept defense spending as part of those caps making sure because somewhere in republican circles it's not understood that defense spending is the same green money that is spent on those pesky little social programs and more than half of the discretionary budget is spent on defense something that most americans have no concept of but what i'm saying to you is wait a minute and also the fact that we have both airplanes and tanks rolling off the assembly lines and going straight into mothballs because they are both jobs programs in Republican districts. That's the problem. Dan Lipner, you cannot tell yep. me that the Democrats, all right, I mean, if you want to get into this argument, that I you look at Democrat, Democrats, wait, 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 hold on. I gave that, you an opportunity. Democrats are fighting the deficit. Wait, 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 wait a minute. You mean to tell me that this bill that was passed by a Democratic House, okay, that Democratic districts don't get benefits from, because I will tell you right now, they absolutely you look at, get benefits, but we're, you are we, are look we at jobs about programs, don't, talking about the deficit. but don't put this on Republicans as being, you know, the, 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 the money grubbing hungry whores that, and, and that, and that, and that the Democrats are saints in this. With, when Democrats are in the White House, otherwise the deficits are hunky dory. When W ran deficits, and the late, great John McCain pointed out accurately that for this Iraq war, it was the first time we had gone to war without a means of paying for it. We had also, wait a minute, yeah. and also, and, wait, 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 wait. I think that that is, that is an absolute horrible argument that you can make because, number one, George w, George George W. Bush also did the largest reorganization in government since the creation of the Department of Defense, and you that cost money. That cost money. It, we had to do it. We had to do it. Do I agree with the Department of Homeland Security? Eh. But by the way, reorganization doesn't necessarily mean it well, costs money. Security, when you reorganize they, you government, for it. Oh. it costs money. So therefore, you have to figure out God. how you're going to pay for it. Good, okay. Good. First of all. Okay. First of all, in terms of in terms of blaming the Democrats, blaming the Republicans, you can't blame one party or another. You have to blame people with it. It's basically a matter of people within the party. For example, go back to the Jimmy Carter administration. Jimmy Carter came in, he ran for president, he said, I'm going to balance the budget. His opposition that year was from Ted Kennedy, Tim O'Neill, and the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. Bob Byrd was another one because they said, Jimmy Carter came in, we want to have great society programs. Our priority should not necessarily be to balance the budget. So eventually Ted Kennedy challenged him in 1980, almost beat him in the Democratic primary. Now, when Bill Clinton came, when Bill Clinton became president, he had a lot of opposition, specifically in 1997, with that balanced budget deal between him, Trent Lott, the majority, from the majority leader from Mississippi, and Drew Gingrich, the uh, Speaker of the House. And part of that opposition was from Dick Gephardt, the minority leader from Missouri, who was thinking about running for president at the time in 2000. And he did not see deficit reduction as kind of a sexy winning issue instead he when he was going to run for president he was going to say we need to do more spending and this isn't what the democratic party is essentially all about uh when barack obama came in he had a lot of opposition for example when he first came in part of it was the stimulus program 
And you're right, by talking about Dan was talking about the whole pump priming idea, the idea that when you're in essentially an economic recession, you have to deficit spend, and once you get out of it, then you do the opposite. What? And actually, it was the blue dog Democrats, and Gene Taylor being one from Mississippi actually made that same argument that John McCain said. He said this was the first time we've ever gone to war in terms of the Iraq war, you know, without paying for right, it, but here's, doing it with a great tax cut. I, I, hear, I, I hear you. I hear you, Rich. But here's the thing is, and this is where I'm going to go back and hit on Dan, is the, the bottom line here is, is that if you were telling me that the fiscal responsibility lies more in the Democrats' lap than it does in the Republican lap, I will tell you right now, this budget does not support that argument, Dan Lipner. The President of the United States sets the tone. There's the a President of the United States gives a Congress a presidential a budget reason. request. Teddy Roosevelt referred to it as the bully pulpit. The oh, fact of the matter Dan. is, if you, if you actually... Are you, are, are, are you, are Dan, you denying wait, wait, wait. You are talking about a president that has a that has an approval rating, a bully pulpit of less than, at best, less than 45% on any given day. That is not driving the narrative. The same thing I told the high school students I used to teach. The first story that leads, absent a natural disaster in almost every national news report, is the statements of the President of the United States. If if Donald Trump said we are we are running a deficit of more than a trillion dollars, we are twenty two trillion dollars in debt. We need to get this under control. And now to quote the late Ross Perot, we all need to to pay our fair share. We need to tighten our belts and we need to contribute more to pay for the government we want. But you cannot. That would be news throughout. You the cannot tell me. You cannot sit here and tell me that the president is driving the budget narrative when the Democrats, if you talk to Nancy Pelosi, she'll be the first one to tell you is, I'm driving the narrative when it comes to Congress, and Congress is writing the checks. What was Don't the deficit tell- under Speaker Ryan? The- no, 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 no. We're not going to play. No, you Boehner. are doing exactly what Mick Mulvaney does and everybody else in God's creation in Washington today is doing is you're playing what if. I'm no, asking no, you a question. I, it I, is I, a what I, if. I'm talking, I'm talking about fact. It is an absolute what one if. What was the deficit under Speaker Boehner? What was the deficit under Speaker Ryan? Which presidents ran the deficit down which presidents ran the deficit up it's very simple math your democratic party in the house just signed off on an unlimited budget ceiling there's a debt ceiling that they blew through they blew through the but the debt ceiling and the the reason the reason for that Tell me, tell me, tell me. There are lunatics out there that want to play political brinksmanship with the debt ceiling. Oh, come on. Never on the left, by the way. It's always on the right. If If U.S. government defaults on the national debt, the global economy will screech to a halt. You are. That is a horror. And I challenge you to find any meaningful economist to suggest that it is not a a global financial disaster if the United States government chooses 
Note the word. Nobody. No, 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 no. But wait, wait, wait. wait. Nobody on the debt. Dan Lipner and and Rich Rubino, I'm sorry. I, I I promise I'll get to you, but I this one has struck a chord with me for some reason. Dan Lipner, okay. you are sitting there and telling me, looking me directly in a camera to my face via camera, that the Democrats don't have blood on their hands for the fiscal irresponsibility that's happening in Washington right now. I am saying that political. You have two you issues are- at play. So what? the lifting the caps, the spending caps that were on both domestic spending on the social programs as well as military spending. And Republicans have been crying bloody murder for the, about the caps on military spending. Nancy Pelosi took a very – what was, a, in her mind, a necessary political step saying we're going to take this off the table. And part of that is, yes, making sure there is no more gamesmanship of either the federal government or the national debt. You'll note we had a government shutdown. And I'm sorry, which president was in office during this last shutdown? That would be Donald Trump. So we're fighting not to have this happen. So wait, 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 wait. Now, hold on. The Before does things. You know what? You know, have paying, another drink of have another drink paying, of scotch. Have another we're drink of scotch. Right now because of the trade war that Trump has fought and is not getting any concessions with China. So we're paying farmers off. All right, I'm going I'm to deal with you in a second. But, Rich Rubino, you know what's ironic to me is when I see uh, the White House acting chief of staff and the still, to this no, moment— still acting chief of staff. What's that? Not a permanent chief of staff. No, no, he's acting still acting. That is true. <laughs> the acting chief of staff, who also happens to be the holder of the Office of Management and Budget— who put this little presidential budget request to the Congress. Uh, you know what's funny is Mick Mulvaney used to be part of the Tea Party. He used to be yeah. the one that was screaming bloody. This budget would have absolutely choked every member of the Freedom Caucus. And yet, people like Mark Meadows, people like Mick Mulvaney, every one of those Tea Partiers. A hypocritical Republican? What? Tell me more. Don't, don't get me started. <laughs> Do not get me started because I will come out on every hypocritical Democrat flying around this town like like a, like a a like an airwave. Hold I'm on to that thought. I'm gambling in this casino. Yeah, but I mean, am I the only one seeing the irony that Mick Mulvaney is defending a president's budget that normally he would have had a mushroom cloud coming out of the top of his head? Oh, absolutely. Well, he's in, I mean, he's in a different position now. You know, when he came to when he came to the House, you know, he when he was in the House of Representatives, he was one of the most conservative members, and I guess conservative in terms of that's considered in terms of being a member of the Freedom Caucus. I mean, certainly, I think deficit hawks, just you know, the deficit hawks versus the um, supply siders. But I think that you know, it's kind of like when Hubert, it's kind of like why well, was Hubert Humphrey, for example, and this is somewhat tangentially related, but you know, he was a huge supporter of the Johnson administration during the Vietnam War. If he had been in the United States Senate. He probably would have. He probably would have opposed it. Um, it's just a matter of you know this is his position he has now, so he has to work with now other members of the Freedom Caucus like Mark Meadows and then the Senate folks like Rand Paul and convince them that why we need to why you essentially need to as you say blow through the debt ceiling, the deficit the debt ceiling and I think it'd be interesting to see how he actually kind of feels. You know he was not a Donald Trump guy from the beginning at all. He was a Rand Paul guy actually, and Rand Paul was actually very coveted. They're trying to get his endorsement because he represented a district in South Carolina. A lot of Republicans in the South Carolina um, primary, the early South Carolina primary. So, so uh, Mick Mulvaney actually went with Rand Paul that time around. He had some very negative things to say about Donald Trump during the primary. 
never really said a lot of positive things about him, but then he got the job, and, by the, and all of a sudden, you know, he's an exponent right. of Donald Trump's right. budget. And by now, the way— Rand Paul, that chose to hang his hat on deficit issues— on the on the backs of first responders. Hold on, I'm going to bring that up. I'm I'm going to bring that up because this torques me. I want to say this publicly. If 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 Rand Paul, if I find out that Rand Paul and Mike Lee, yep, if, if I find out that either one of them or both of them vote for this budget after the the absolute heartbreaking efforts they tried to do in killing a unanimous consent on extending the 9-11 survivors funding because it there was no way to pay for it, if they vote yes on this budget, I'm going to make it a personal mission of my show to make it a point to call them out on that hypocrisy done on the backs of first responders. That was despicable that was absolutely just abhorrent and absolutely mind-blowing that they I mean, would do that and if they turn around they vote the for this budget this. what's that somebody can check the numbers on this if we simply took the funding for the m1a1 abrams tank i think we're on the a2 now uh tank that literally the pentagon does not want more of that are literally being driven off the showroom floor into mothballs because they are not needed. If that money was instead shuffled over to the 9-11 responders, I suspect it would be more than a one-to-one offset. Well, we're going to have this conversation again because we haven't, I haven't been this heated in a while. Uh, and by the way, <laughs> if it wasn't for the fact that we've got Senator uh, Cafaro coming on the line in about a minute— I'd keep this going, but I want to have Senator Cafaro on this because that's a sensible Democrat. I suspect she'll agree with me. I No, because she's a sensible Democrat. That's why Dan Littner. Ooh. Anyway, uh, no, I love Dan. Yeah, l- yeah, let's ask her about farmers in Ohio. No, we're going to ask her. Let, let me do the interview. Let me do the interview. This is Backroom Politics. When we come back, we are going to have the former senator from the 32nd District in Ohio, the Democrat, and... Fox News contributor Capri Cafaro. She'll be joining us. This is Backroom Politics. Stay with us. Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. And we're back. For those of you on the live feed, because it's a live feed, you're probably going, hey, we heard the we heard the bumper music, but it went a little bit longer than we thought. Well, uh, that's what happens when you do a live feed. Hey, joining us, as we promised... Uh, on the line with us right now. She is the former Democratic senator representing the 32nd District of the state of Ohio. She is Capri Cafaro. Senator, how are you doing? 
Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks for joining thanks us. For this is on. this is a, a, a pleasure. You know, we we know that you've been getting a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, good FaceTime on Fox News. You were just on Outnumbered, I believe, yesterday. I uh, yesterday and today. And t- and today, wow. Yep. So we're getting you fresh off of a Fox News hit. Um, as a Democrat, I'm just going to get this out of the way, and then we'll go to the real topics. But as a Democrat, do you, do you feel that Fox is kind of a hostile environment? Do you feel it's a warm, welcoming environment? Is Fox getting a bad rap, or is there some truth in some of the rhetoric that we hear about what's happening at Fox? What I would say is, as personally, I mean, my experience with everyone at Fox as a team has been nothing short of, uh, you know, a, honestly, like a family-like environment. Everybody there has been super cool and super nice. The women have been great mentors, um, you know, the people behind the scenes, the hair, the makeup folks, you know, everybody like that has just been great. Now, obviously, you know, it, uh, like like MSNBC and, and others, I mean, you know, there are certain uh, opinion hosts that obviously have their own, you know, narrative and bias in, in prime time, or I guess opinion rather than bias, right. is maybe the way you want to put it. Um, and that's sort of the nature of cable news. And so, um, you know, yes, I'm I'm usually outnumbered uh, myself as a uh, as a Democrat on the network um, or a left leaning voice. But um, to me, that has not it has not made it a hostile environment. I think it's important for um, you know folks uh, on the Democratic side to um, engage with the Fox uh, viewership. To be honest, I mean, so many folks in Ohio. Watch it. It is the number one cable news network in the country. And, right. and um, you know, people that are Democrats and independents watch it, too. So it's important to have, um, you know, a, a real dialogue and one that is not hostile. And, and I try to do that, you know, in my appearances, uh, trying to bring facts and calling them like I see them. And if I think the Democrats aren't doing a good job on something, I say that, too. And I'm certainly not afraid to uh Call out the Republicans, even though sometimes I am outnumbered. <laughs> That's awesome. That is fantastic. Hey, Senator, I, you know, you were minority leader uh, in the in the in the House as well as in the Senate, if I'm correct. No, no, just I I was never in the House. You were never in the House, so you were the minority leader in the Senate. In the Senate, uh, when you know, in Ohio, we hear all the political rhetoric of you can't win the presidency without Ohio. Ohio is the big change state. It can either make or break a campaign. Uh, But it seems to me that, and and this is just my opinion, that Ohio is going through a little bit of a political identity crisis where, you know. No, it's not. It's not? No, here's why. I know everybody has been freaking out over, you know, what's happened to Ohio and it's turning into Missouri. Well, for those people, here's what I say to them. We, the, the Ohio Senate has not been controlled by Democrats since 1984. Right. We've only had one Democratic governor in Ohio it, since 1990, and that was Ted Strickland, and only for four years. Um, you know, so uh, the fact that, for example, in the midterm elections, um, you know, Democrats didn't see the gains as other states did is not out of the ordinary in in our state. I think we are a center-right state, but I do think that, um, you know, in the presidential elections, um, we do remain a swing state. 
Um, and, you know, we have for better worked on with the uh, winner of the White House every cycle since Herbert Hoover. So that is that is fact. And I know in 2016, um, you know, a lot of people tried to write Ohio off saying, OK, well, you know, it's the demographics are changing. It's just too old. It's too white. It's not reflective of the uh, American electorate at large. And so it doesn't have the same sort of um, uh, relevance as far as being a bellwether or predictor Right. Of, um, of the White House, right. a.k.a. like you don't need to win Ohio in order to win the White House. That proved not to be the case <laughs> in 2016 again. So, um, you know, I would say don't count Ohio out, um, at least in 2020. Now, in 2024, as if we lose, you know, another two congressional seats, and I think, you know, in general, in the, 20, in the 2024 cycle and after the 2020 census, the... Um, center of gravity, for lack of a better term, I think will shift right. um, because um, the census will um, basically change the electoral college maps um, and shift those things to, to the southwest and the Sun Belt more. Right. So, but, but I guess when I say identity crisis, and, 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 I, and I definitely hear what you're saying, Senator, the, 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 I guess the question is, because if, if I look at Ohio, you have the changing demographics in like Columbus. Columbus is now, I guess, the biggest city in Ohio. And you've got a lot of technology, a lot of finance, uh, a lot of white collar uh, industry going into Columbus. Yet you look at your hometown of Youngstown, Right, where there right. seems Trumbull to County. <laughs> right, and you. I'm not, a, I'm not technically Youngstown, but yes. Yeah, close but enough. yeah, but you look at the loss of the GM factory. There's still a yep. very strong UAW blue collar lunch pail, uh, almost conservative Democrat union Democrat yeah. type feeling, and it seems like that, that there might be either coming to the head when those two paths cross. What happens politically in Ohio? I don't. I think what what you're seeing, frankly, is what happens in Ohio is a lot of the young people from all over the state, from my own, you know, from the Mahoning Valley in Northeast Ohio, from you know, uh, rural uh, west northwestern Ohio, from Appalachian, whatever. They go to Columbus for to go to Ohio State, and or subsequently to maybe come back and they get a job at limited brands or nationwide insurance or cardinal health or whatever and but it's it's the basically what's happening is these people are already from ohio and it's a brain drain from the other parts of the state that comes into central ohio because of the university and because of the industries there so these people have already always been there they've just shifted the center of gravity and their parents and grandparents are back in their hometown right that makes sense so this isn't new people necessarily that have come and descended on Ohio, although I would I would argue that if there's any one place where, you know, people are moving into the state it would be Columbus. Um, but, uh, you know, I I know what you're trying to get at, basically saying, you know, you have two sort of diverging um, sort of political axes uh, right. inside. Like, is this is this, you know, the uh, progressive Democratic, you know, uh, wing versus, you know, the more, uh, you know, is this Elizabeth Warren versus, you know, Joe Biden and like what happens? Right. Um, <laughs> and I hear what you're saying there, but I, I don't think it's it's quite as black and white as that. Actually, Senator, if I could ask you a quick question. Uh, I yeah. was actually in Ohio uh, working on a congressional race in the Ohio 5th. And one of the items that was a big sticking point for me and just genuinely surprised me 
when in contrast to Michigan, and yes, I am well aware of the issues between Ohio and Michigan, um, <laughs> the fact that SB5, which was the, the uh, piece of legislation yep. to make uh, Ohio a right-to-work state, um, right. was pushed well, back. That, actually, that's, Senate Bill 5, actually, that's inaccurate. It would it would actually would have changed the collective bargaining rights for public employees explicitly, including police and fire. It had nothing to do with private sector right to work issues. Just to be clear to the listeners. Okay, gotcha. But it was still pushed back by eighty seven of Ohio's eighty eight counties. Yep. And so, uh, and that that collective bargaining thing is is traditionally a Democratic issue, not a Republican issue. So it seems to me that there is most certainly a a while not necessarily partisan a working class lean toward ohio that is occasionally overlooked but always tainted uh, with a political agreed. spin agreed and and two points on this i think one of the reasons why we saw the victory that we saw i mean not only because the labor unions um were very very well organized and because many of the other private sector unions like the united auto workers and the steel workers even though sometimes they do have they do represent public sector people every now and again um, you know, they stood in solidarity. And unlike Wisconsin that had, you know, similar, um, you know, collective bargaining for public employee issues that happened in the same time in 2011, police and fire were not included, um, whereas police and fire were included in Ohio. Police and fire are more traditionally conservative leaning, uh, oftentimes, even if they, you know, are subject to collective bargaining uh, and public pensions. So there, there are a lot of things that play, interestingly enough, on the same ballot. Um, While well, Senate Bill 5 um, was rejected pretty resoundingly, um, the, at the same time, they, um, they also rejected Obamacare on the ballot pretty resoundingly as well. Yeah. So it was a yeah, weird, a- you know, so that was a strange sort of how did both of those things happen at the same time. I scratched my head on that one, too. Richard Bino, you got a question yep. for the senator. Yeah, I do have it. I do have a question. I'm curious a little bit about your perception now about Tim Ryan. And when I hear him and I heard him in the first debate, he makes a case and not a lot of Democrats are making. He says that the Democratic Party needs to be a party of the whole country, not of the not a coastal party. It needs to be seen right. as not an elitist party. And he also talks about the fact that they shouldn't be identifying themselves, you know, in terms of identity politics, that type of thing. I'm wondering. What would your take? What? How is he conceived in the district? And also, what would what would they? What would you think of the possibility of him perhaps being a vice presidential nominee for um for one of the candidates? I think he seems to be positioning himself to that respect. I know he was on Hillary Clinton's shortlist uh, last time. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that Tim Ryan is telling people, telling the Democratic Party, frankly, what they need to hear. I mean, he is definitely running. I think a very honest campaign from where he comes from, um, from being from, you know, our home community. And I think that, you know, frankly, if the, um, if the party was ever going to actually give any um, attention and the media was going to give any attention to, uh, you know, the candidates that frankly were maybe a little bit more moderate, maybe were representing a greater, um, you know, swath of the population, I mean, Tim Ryan has a very strong message and a narrative to tell. And he's one of the few people, frankly, that actually have a plan on manufacturing, a plan on education. Like, you see so much stuff that where he's actually talking about real policy, um, and you're not seeing a whole lot of that um, from, from other candidates in a, in a meaningful right. manner. Not right. to say that they don't have policy positions, but, 
you know, you find that people are getting lost in the minutia of a lot of this other, you know, sort of noise. Um, and, you know, I think yeah. if Tim were to be asked, you know, I would hope he would seriously consider and take take the opportunity to join a ticket if, um, you know, obviously he's he's hovering below 1%. Right. So it's a... Tough going for him right now. So, Senator, let, let's let's talk about the the 2020 uh, tonight in uh, neighboring Michigan, up in Detroit. You've got the first series of ten out of twenty on the first stage for the Democratic debate uh, on a on a broad <clears throat> excuse me on a broad perspective. Is there a fear inside at least the moderate wing of the party that? Uh, this is starting to look too much like Republican 2016 ticket in debate cycle. Uh, you're, you're saying it's just too crowded. Yeah, and it's just, yeah. This is. I, a, I don't think you can. You can, you almost can't compare the 2016. Yet, I mean, it, outside of sheer volume of numbers of people, um, for a couple different reasons, because the selection process of how the people were put on the stage, um, they were done differently. Um, so that's a little bit different because you're dealing with sort of there was like the undercard debate versus the top tier debate. Right. And so that, you know, that's different than the supposed random selection that's occurring between these two tiers. Um, you know, I and I supposedly I mean, I did not see it, but I guess they did actually pull like names out of a hat um, for CNN. Yeah. Um, they but, had the wild card. They had the wild card selections. It right. Was like the NFL but, draft. But I, I, I think that it's less. <laughs> It's not the same in the sense that you had, it's like everybody and Donald Trump, you know, in 2016. Now you sort of like, you have five or six people and then randoms that you forgot about. So you have, you know, Kamala and Bernie and Beto, not even Beto, but, um, you know, Mayor Pete and Elizabeth Warren and Biden. And then you forget about everybody else. So that being the case, is is there a fear inside the party that, uh, we, they might be creating that there might just be some burnout over starting the debate cycle this early, this many, and it just seems sensory overload to many. Well, but how else do you? I agree with you. <laughs> it's a lot, but how else do you start to whittle down the field if you don't start this early with this many people? How do you then start to, you know? Um, uh, in the herd. <laughs> well, no, that, I mean that's that's a great point you bring up because I, mean, I, I hate to say this, but wasn't Donald Donald Trump at like two or three percent before the debates? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But 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 Senator, you bring up a great point. The the question then becomes is, you know, when we had a true strong leadership in the national parties, uh, you know, you go back to a you know for us uh, as recent as a Haley Barber, let's say. Uh, you know, us, me being a moderate Republican who's not a big fan of the Trump administration. But, you know, <clears throat> when we had strong leadership at the party level nationally, there was always kind of a uh, a party directive of saying, all right, we're going to limit this to six. Let's let's find out who the best qualified, the best uh, position, who can actually win the White House, it seems we've gotten away from that. Are you saying that there's an argument an argument to be made that we should go back to the old political boss system that would, in fact, help us organize, strategize, and come up with an all-inclusive platform that would get everybody involved? 
Well, I mean, I think there's a difference between platform and sort of selectively kingmaking, um, you know, so to speak. So, you know, I we've seen this on both sides where there's these heir apparent nominees, whether it's John McCain or Hillary Clinton, uh, J- uh, you know, John Kerry, um, you know, and so usually you have some people, you know, you have a somewhat of a kind of crowded field, but like by Super Tuesday, one person is cleaned up. Um, and then, you know, the party sort of gets everybody in line. Um, and, you know, there's good, there's strengths and weaknesses to that. I mean, I think that, you know, as Democrats, uh, you know, trying to beat Donald Trump in 2020, this all seems like a huge circus and distraction because, you know, we're firing at each other. We're getting in the weeds. We're trying to let the perfect get in the way of the good. It's, you know, who's not progressive enough? Who's too progressive? Who's not, you know, moderate, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We're, we're dealing with all this sort of internal, um, you know, uh, nuances when, you know, at the same time, Democrats are saying, look, the, our top priority is beating Donald Trump. Well, is it? And, you know, so then the question becomes, like, if we had a strong, you know, DNC, would they be able to, like, put people in their place and say, okay, we're going to try to rally around X, Y, and Z? That didn't work so well in 2016 either. And I think that those days, frankly, are gone because mm-hmm. of the way that the Internet is and how how much people can raise money, organize, get their message out, and don't necessarily need well, Sorry, I told you it would be loud. <laughs> that's um, okay. <laughs> Um, I just we just saw this is life in D.C. Um, a huge helicopter, a military helicopter that just went overhead. So sorry, listeners. No, 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 um, no, no. <laughs> Trust me, Donald we, we had a, trying to disrupt our show. It, that, that's not true, <laughs> and you know that, Dan. But it, but those who listen to the earlier broadcast in the week will understand that. Yeah, we 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 know about loud noises, right, Dan? <laughs> anyway, I don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. Uh, so, Senator, you know. Let, let's let's talk about some of the the issues that are popping up right now. Um, the the Democrats are taking a lot of heat right now, particularly uh, Chairman Nadler and Chairman Schiff for overplaying their hand and overselling the uh, recent Mueller hearings. Do you think that that was a smart play by uh, by Nadler and, and and Schiff, or? Did they, in fact, endanger themselves and the party by slightly overplaying and overblowing up the importance of that hearing? I, I think they did overplay their hand, and I've said this publicly a number of times. I mean, people in Ohio and across the country, yes, people do care about oversight. They don't want their government to be corrupt. They don't want it to be compromised by, you know, foreign entities, all of these things. And, and it is Congress's responsibility and constitutional duty of oversight. However, the amount of theater and theatrics that have gone into this, I think, and the amount of weight that was placed upon it, I think did, there was almost no way not to fail, if that makes sense. Because, you know, I think that there was this expectation that somehow either, you know, the combination of Robert Mueller bringing his report to life by talking about it and hoping that he would explicitly say, yes, the president would be charged if he was not literally in the Oval Office. Those are the two things I think they wanted. And they kind of, I mean, circuitously, maybe they got some of that. But um, I think that the bigger problem politically is that it makes the, Demo- it makes 
the Democrats basically a very easy target for Trump. Someone who says, you know, the world has Trump derangement syndrome. They're out to get Trump. They're not doing anything. It's all about taking Trump down. And when the Democrats do that, this kind of, um, you know, focus on this, it hurts. I think it, it, it allows Trump to play that card. I think if they wanted to do this, I would do it very quietly. I would, yeah, go ahead and continue to subpoena bank records and all this other stuff. Don't have a big to-do. Do that work in quiet. Do your investigations. Right. Let, let the cards fall where they will and focus on policy. And every right. time Trump tweets and does any other crazy stuff, say, look, we're the adults in the room. We're trying to do our job while well, you're tweeting about whoever that rapper is in Sweden <laughs> that you're apparently trying to get out of prison. Wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Senator, did you just make an ASAP Rocky reference? The problem is I the did. president Thank has also spoken about ASAP Rocky. Wait, wait. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Rich Rubino. Yeah, I just want a quick question. I just I know that Sherrod Brown, the senator from up there, had was, was contemplating running for a president. He had his dignity um, yeah. of work tour. I actually thought that he was probably the most electable candidate in a general election because he comes from certainly he's won in Ohio, but he also has a very populist message. So he's basically, I think that he was yeah. palatable to the liberal and the more moderate wings of the party. Um, I'm wondering, what do you think of the possibility of him as a vice presidential uh, nominee for somebody? I don't, I, I mean, I think it would be great. I don't think he would do it. I think that if he was going to do you it, don't. he would just run. Um, you know, okay. so I think that okay. because if, if he just, if he decided he wasn't going to run, I think that that means he's not going to be on the ticket either. But I tend to agree with you. I think the dignity of work tour was very smart. I think that the Democratic is he ticket is at a loss without him there. Dan, but, no, he was up last cycle. Yeah, he was up last cycle. But somebody, look, somebody has to, you know, defend the home, you know, the home front in the Senate. We have so many members running from the United States Senate and no one's actually, you know, doing their real job. I mean, if you really care about things like, you know, federal judgeships and, right. you know, confirmation, somebody's got to be there to actually watch after that stuff. And so I think Sherrod Brown really is a workhorse and not a show horse, and I think that's why he made his, the decision he made. So what? So okay. here's here's the question now: is as we look towards 2020, Senator, uh, Ohio again is going to be kind of a target venue for everybody. It's definitely a swing state. Uh, the dynamics. So Trump is down by ten points to Biden right now. Right. Well, that, right. that, that it's early though. Yeah. That brings up, but that brings up my question: Is did have have both parties overplayed their hand in Ohio, almost taking Ohio for granted? You know, the 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 Trumpers were saying, "Look at what we did in Ohio." Trump's now down ten points, and the people that he was elected by are the ones getting hurt by tariffs. Uh, and and the impact on auto workers, right. steel, and farming. Yet at the same time, the Democrats kind of take that electorate for granted, and they say, "Well, Ohio downright is truly a blue state." Are 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 people not paying that much attention to Ohio? And do they need to put more focus on Ohio as an electorate base? I, I think that you're you're on to something. I mean, I do think that there's both sides, basically, that are either, you know, Trump saying, well, I won it by whatever, 11 points last time. And people said I couldn't win it. And I won it. And I don't believe the polls because look how all the polls like turned out in 2016. And there's that whole narrative of, you know, don't believe the polls. The polls are fake, fake polls, fake news. Right. 
Now, on the flip side, the Democrats, there are some that are still saying, you know, look, that Ohio can be, you know, in play. But then there are also others saying, you know, forget Ohio. You know, we've lost it forever and it's not coming back. Just write it off. Uh, I think that there is a bit of a middle ground there. I mean, I think that, you know, it is possible to close the gap, particularly since, you know, all of the supposed economic prosperity has left Ohio behind. And I can tell you. For sure, so many of the people that voted for Trump and crossed over for Trump in, in 2016 did so because they believed that, you know, he would right the wrongs of NAFTA, that he was going to be able to, you know, even the playing field when it came to trade. And, and you know, I don't think banked on how tariffs are going to impact, you know, the auto supply chain and so many other things. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, the fact that, that that economic prosperity has not hit um, you know, the home front in Ohio, I think, makes it incredibly vulnerable for President Trump in 2020. But I also think that it would be it's very important for Democrats to focus right. all of their efforts on those three those three states, Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania, that were far, far, far closer right. in 2016 right. in order to flip them. So Actually, I feel like those those three have to be priorities. Or like you can't even like or Ohio is, is like useless anyway. Dan Lipner, you got a comment? So, Senator, to, to kind of buttress your point. Um, so Sherrod, I was actually there when Sherrod Brown ran uh, in 2012 uh, for reelection. Re-election? And yeah, I was on the ballot that year, too. And he did his uh, statewide tour and his entire caravan was sustained with nothing but cars built in ohio so yes, the chevy cruise the, the, the chevy cruise and the jeeps yeah it was it was an amazing thing to behold uh much to my chagrin the obama campaign actually scheduled against uh sherrod brown which i personally found unbelievable but that <laughs> said uh the chevy cruise plant in particular uh the chevy cruise is uh being mothballed by general motors Yes, and, I represented that. I represented that plant. I was there when they sent the last shipment of Chevy Cruises on the Ohio Turnpike, and literally cried on on local television. It was pretty embarrassing, but I don't really care. <laughs> and you're actually and, and you're actually helping me with my point that the Democratic Party. Um, one of the, my great irritations: most Americans don't know the Democratic Party should be the party of working people, and not necessarily just the party of these social issues. And even a nod to Claire McCaskill. Uh, saying that these uh, social issues tend to steer people away when you're talking about people who just don't look like them. And in, ca- in the case of Ohio, a predominantly white state, but working class white state. But Sherrod Brown has been a senator there for a very long time and managed to show that working people actually represent Ohio. But with the Chevy Cruise plant, the media made a point of profiling all the families that would be hurt and incidental right. to that, those profiles were faces of diversity for all the working people that were going to be left Absolutely. out in the cold when the plants closed. Is that what the Democratic Party is missing? Pointing out that working people represent all of us and doing the social issue politics discounts people who should be Democrat and could be Democrat. Yeah, I mean, I... I, I... One of the things that I think Sherrod Brown has always done well is to say, look, you know, this isn't a matter of either or. It's not either you embrace diversity in the social issues or you embrace, you know, working families and that sort of thing. Um, I think that, you know, there is you, you are able, I think, to 
be true to some of these, you know, issues of inclusiveness, so to speak, that the Democratic Party is, is you know, um, in, uh, focused on. But at the same time, again, as you said, I mean, bringing it into the context that, um, you know, it's not just the, you know, sort of white, non-college educated middle-aged man who's in jeopardy. I mean, there are families of all colors and ages and you know, races and ethnic backgrounds that are that are impacted by, um, you know, the, the closure of General Motors um, and the subsequent. We, we had a um, our hot, one of our hospitals closed as well, um, just right, basically right before that plant closed. I mean, so the, our community is really suffering, and the Democrats need to pay attention to that and and talk about how you know a strong economy lifts all boats. Right. Well, we've got a couple. Oh, we've got oh, a couple of congressmen from Ohio. Who else in the Democratic field is talking to that point? Uh, John Delaney. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, he's not doing too bad on on some of those issues. I mean, I, Amy Klobuchar um, has been, you know, pretty smart about how she's approached some things. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, I, what, the way that some of these debates have gone, they basically put like the quote moderates in a bucket and like made them like the undercard by by omission and then made all the sort of shinier candidates that everybody has paid attention to in one block as well. But is is is, is moderate yeah. a bad moniker in the Democratic Party today? Uh, in some circles, yes. Um, you know, and is that a problem? And, uh, I, I I think maybe just, you know, the nomenclature is changing, um, but it's, it's ultimately the Democratic Party has to acknowledge right. that we are a big tent and that in order to not only win the presidency, but to be competitive uh, at the state legislative level, the congressional level right. and the gubernatorial level, we have to we cannot ignore the heartland. And that's just a fact. Good. Yeah. So we've got, we've, got, we've got one we've got one minute left to go uh, here in the, in the episode. Uh, I just first of all, quick round. Uh, Cleveland, are you a Cleveland Browns fan? Yes. How far do the Browns go this year? Um, I think they make it to the playoffs. They almost had. They almost made the wild card last year, and so I am. I am optimistic. And what's happening to your Indians this year? <laughs> I don't really follow baseball. What? Oh. Oh wow! Well, you may as well have just said you hate America. I, 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 um, <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a little heartbroken. I'm a little heartbroken. I got, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little heartbroken by that. Good grief! Hey, uh, Senator Capri Cafaro, I cannot tell you how much of a pleasure we've had having you on. Oh, it's been a blast. We hope that you'll join yes, us again. Thank you. Anytime. Thank you for the uh, thank you for the invitation. Done and done. So that means that we're coming up to another end of another broadcast of your of the most popular political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics. On behalf of Rich Rubino, Dan Lipner, Rob the Engineer behind the cage, Eric Thomas, our executive producer. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Ross. Hey, by the way, you can follow us on Twitter, which uh, Senator Cafaro does too. And you can also follow us uh, on Facebook. Follow us on your favorite podcasting uh, services, whether it's Google, Apple, and Spotify. We're kind of a big deal now. Anyways, have a great week, America. We'll see you next time.